Welcome, everyone, to my podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. I invite you to take a journey with me into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties us directly to the natural world around us. My intention is to be your guide for this half hour as we begin seeing our world with fresh eyes, gaining more understanding, and learning how we can connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature's in us. I feature a broad range of guests deeply concerned about the environmental issues of our time and more, authors and educators, practitioners and others, whose passion for this earth and for all species help us create sustainable bridges of understanding. These folks are innovators, action-oriented, creating solutions in a variety of ways that honor us and the planet's holistic nature. I am so honored to share their stories, their projects, and their passion with all of you. So thank you for joining me today for another engaging interview. Today I want to introduce you to Ayana Young, who is a podcast and radio personality specializing in intersectional environmental and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. With an academic background at the intersections of ecology, culture, and spirituality, Young was studying at Columbia when the Occupy Wall Street movement began, and amid the burgeoning resistance in Zuccotti Park, she co-created the Environmental Working Group. Since then, Ayana has been the force behind a Native Species Nursery and Research Center, including the establishment of the One Million Redswood Project, which was acclaimed as the most backed farm project in Kickstarter history, the film When Old Growth Ends, an ode to the complex interweaving of the irreplaceable Tongass National Forest during its last stand as a distinctly wild place in southeast Alaska, and for the Wild podcast, a weekly show featuring thought leaders at the forefront of environmental, artistic, scientific, political, and cultural shift. Welcome, Ayana Young, to uh, The Holistic Nature of Us. I'm delighted to have you share your experience, your journey, and your thoughtful action to my listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, and I'm really excited to talk about the natural world with you and all of that, which just brings us so much life and joy. It does. So let's start with your journey. How did you get into activism and specializing in deep ecology and land-based restoration? Well, um, I feel like I was always connected to some type of reality about the world from a young child onwards. I always had an intuition that something wasn't right about our dominant systems and our dominant culture. And I didn't have the community or the language or really the understanding of how to be an activist or how to work with plants. Even I didn't have a garden growing up, so it wasn't something that I was conditioned to be able to do, but it was, uh, let's see. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as a child, there were so many moments that I just had a feeling that 
you know, when I would look at oil rigs off the coast of California, or I would notice that another wetland was being filled and developed to be another track home housing unit. Those things really affected me, but I didn't know how to explain why they were affecting me. I didn't know the words suburban sprawl. I didn't understand what uh, ecological destruction happens when we continue developing in these especially fragile habitats. So again, it was more of a feeling sense. And in high school, I definitely had some rebellious moments, but it wasn't until really Occupy Wall Street that everything just came together. Before that, I did study environmental studies. I, you know, I was taking courses on um, different ways of, of understanding the earth and earth sciences, but that didn't fully uh, catapult me into what I'm doing now. I think those were all just steps. And then Occupy Wall Street was really the fire because people were passionate. People were angry. There was a lot of rage. There was a lot of joy in organizing. There was a lot of um, just more human, relational, emotional component to the work, which is something that I really needed. And so when that happened, I really felt like I was being guided to do this work. And basically overnight, a few days after going to Occupy and meeting my partner there, he was living at Zuccotti Park, we started the Environmentalist Working Group. And we were organizing 100 people meetings and protests. And it was so much amazing energy. I was I loved that time so much. And from there, I just never looked back. You know, I went down to Patagonia for a couple months with him. And we were really in wild areas. And I had never camped before in my life. And so here I am camping in this extremely wild, rugged place. And a few months prior, I had fallen in love with political organizing and activism. And then in Patagonia, I fell in love with the wild. And the culmination of those two experiences oh, really set me on fire into this path that I am in now. So those are a few things and that were these guideposts along the way. And I, I just never turned back. And then I ended up leaving New York City and moving out into the woods of northern Oregon, where I then fell in love with the temperate rainforest and knew that that was really the ecosystem I was going to be committing myself to. And then I started the podcast and for the wild has just been growing organically from all of these different experiences that opened different doors that I felt called to walk through. Well, that's interesting. It's um, I find it fascinating how the intersection of perhaps experiences propels us into doing something more. And uh, I do a lot with, on a soul level, getting our soul destiny and finding out what that is. And that's what excites me, especially when I hear my guests, such as yourself, relate a series of experiences that propel you forward into creating mm -hmm. more. And you've done a lot with coalition building. Uh, you're passionate about regenerative forestry. Uh, so tell us how your new projects today are kind of weaving all these threads together. Yeah, so I have the podcast, which I think that maybe we're most well known for. And the podcast was born during that time when I had 
left organ and I was looking for a place to really root down and I was feeling extremely overwhelmed by the realities of, of our suffering planet and all of the creatures that we share this earth with. And um, it was just so, yeah, it was really overwhelming to understand the Anthropocene extinction more clearly and climate change. And out of that fear and confusion, I started the podcast because I wanted to look to elders and thought leaders and really understand from them. Um, yeah, I really understand from them how to move forward, how to not just placate or be complicit or even say, oh, well, the earth will be okay. We just, you know, let's not get too upset about it, which is, was a lot of the rhetoric of the new age at that point. So I was really grateful to look to these thought leaders who were being honest, but also passionate to be engaged in how to move the movement forward, this movement for ecological, social, environmental, um, cultural justice. And the podcast really informed a lot of the One Million Redwoods Project, as well as the Tongass National Forest Campaign and the Copper River Delta Campaign, which are the other projects that we work on at For the Wild. For instance, when I first started the podcast, I interviewed Tom Waldo, who's a lead attorney for Earth Justice. And that's how I found out that we were cutting our last remaining old growth forest on our national public lands with our taxpayer dollars. We have less than two to four percent of all old growth left globally i didn't even know that there was we had that much old growth left and that it was also being slaughtered every day and i was actually paying for it so that was um such a shock and so that really catalyzed us to do storytelling and to help support grassroots organizations on the ground there to advocate to keep roadless rule in place which basically says you can't you can't build new roads into the Tongass um, in certain areas and you can't log in those areas and, and hopefully mine, even stopping the mining. And, um, and then similarly, well, with the, I'll get to the 1 million Redwoods project last, but with, with the Copper River Delta, I interviewed Dune Lankard, who's an amazing EAC uh, activist from Cordova, Alaska. And, he has done so much to protect the forest and the waters there, especially after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And um, we just got along so well because we were both completely obsessed with the temporary rainforest. And he invited me up to raft the copper with him, and I did. And from that point forward, I just connected with him and his belief systems and that land so much that now we're partnering to protect 11,000 acres of mountains from being exploded for coal extraction and if we're able to protect this 11,000 acres we'll be in a sense protecting the 3 million acres around them because there was there'd be no need to put in any roads to extract the coal so that's how that project came to be and then the 1 million redwoods project that project you know spending so much time in the forest was really the forest was what guided me to do this project because I was so in love with the temperate rainforest and I was witnessing and experiencing firsthand. I was a commercial mushroom hunter for a while, so I was really in the forest and seeing how much has been logged and the mass of, uh, like just the, the huge difference between an old growth forest and a second growth forest and a third growth forest and a plantation forest. And, and I knew that there was a huge issue with biodiversity loss 
forest cover loss, biomass loss, soil uh, degradation, um, just so, and, and there's so many domino effects that happen after a forest is logged. And um, and then I'd interviewed Diana Beresford Kroger, who I really look up to. And and between her interview and being with the forest, I had just heard that I needed to help protect what's still here and to help steward in the next generation of forest uh, into these very damaged places. And yeah. so that's how um, that, that project was born. Wow, that's, that's an amazing um, story of you know again feeling on fire to do something but actually doing it and, and with all your um, deep love for the temperate forest and living there and I think that's the key to your work is that you've actually lived in the forest and I think nature talks to us in ways that we're still uh, very shy about talking about in society today but some of the elders in our indigenous populations um, have no problem with that because it's a part of their their circle. It's a part of their culture to understand that we are so connected and that we can receive guidance from nature. And it's my feeling that nature holds the answers for many of our climate uh, change issues today if we just you know stop and listen and observe and look. So I know part of your program talks about um, with the with the one million redwood project. Uh, tell us more about that because um, it, you're it's not just about solutions. You're also uh, talking about building relationships uh, to every tree that you put in that ground. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So there, even though planting trees. You know, maybe I'll say, oh, let's plant trees. And it seems like there's no bad way to plant trees or plant. There's it's all good just to plant a tree. But the more that, you know, one looks into that, there's, you know, where is the seed coming from? What are the genetics of that tree? What kind of soil was the tree raised in? What kind of plastic pot? How much water did it take? What was there perlite in the potting soil or peat moss that had to be mined from somewhere else so that these seedlings can grow? Who owns those seeds? Where are they being planted? How are they being planted? What kind of fossil fuel usage or machines are being used in order to prepare the land? Is the land being sprayed with poison? Are the trees being sprayed with poison? And before, you know, so there is like so much that goes into reforestation and there is a restoration industrial complex where things are done in a way that I don't personally want to do now I don't want to say that I think that all large-scale tree planting projects are wrong I think that we are in a climate crisis and if some industrial methods that if some people want to use industrial methods to plant a lot of trees and that's you know I don't I, I think even though I don't think that's the best case scenario I think it's a much better way to sequester carbon than a lot of these other high-tech ways that are coming out right now. So I just want to preface with that. But for me, I yeah, it's very important that I look at the entire ecosystem and I look at tree planting as a community project, community of plants, the assemblage of what plants grow together, what fungi grows with them, but also the community of humans that steward that land. So it's more about relational planting, like relational planting of plants with each other and relational planting of working with people in the communities. 
Um, and it's much more, yeah, I, I look at this project as spiritual. Um, I look at it about, I look at it as we are trying to create or recreate or reignite our relationship to the earth and it's slower. There's, it's much more about listening to the forest and not trying to make quick decisions out of urgency that may really affect us negatively in the future. Cause that happens a lot. You know, there's a lot of people have good intentions and they'll make decisions that are actually quite harmful for the forest and otherwise. So here we're really focusing on genetics of plants, the biodiversity of assemblage of plants, the soil, um, rebuilding the soil and um, not using industrial methods, industrial potting soils or new plastic pots. So every part of this project, it's really important that we try to do it with as much integrity as possible, knowing that we'll never be perfect, knowing that there's no way for us to not use fossil fuel at all. So as much as I wish I could be a total purist, um, that's not possible for us at this point maybe in the future, but I do think that looking at low tech methods that more people uh, have access to, even folks just wanting to grow native plants in their backyard can utilize rather than creating these really complicated high energy systems. I don't, I don't think that's the way forward. Yeah. I think you're very practical with that too. You know, um, I think if we get too caught up in a purist method, I think we lose ground. And today, I don't think we can afford to lose ground. You know, there's so many tipping points. I've had Doug Tallamy on my show, uh, who's a bug guy, and he's done extensive research through the University of Delaware. And the numbers for our bug populations are seriously declining. And there was a recent report that I just caught last week that we've lost 90% of our, our monarchs just as one species that's really losing ground because of the way we've treated our land. So I think what you're doing is, it's not just admirable, it's, um, or inspirational, because it's both, but it's more than that. You're, you're, you're at the ground level. You know, you're working with the ground, you're working with the, yeah. the land in the best way that you know how. Um, you talk about, too, uh, planting the tree with rituals. Uh, how, let me ask you two questions, Ayana. How many trees have you planted so far, and what kind of rituals do you think people get excited about with planting the trees? Yeah, um, well, I'm not just planting trees, and I want to clarify that as well. Um, we have definitely planted thousands of redwoods at this point. Um, I think about 5,000 redwoods we planted last year, or maybe, no, but between the last couple of years, yeah, between five and 7,000 redwoods. But we've also been planting thousands of understory plants as well. And, and I know the trees get all of the spotlight and, um, <laughs> and I, uh, and the trees are very important, but like I said, it's really for me about the whole community and a, an assemblage of trees. And um, the 5,000 trees, well, I want to say five to 7,000 because there, there was some trees that weren't just redwoods in there. But um, those were part of the Kickstarter. So those were part of the rewards. And then we had to take a couple years to do indigenous consultation to really work on the nursery space um, and to focus on slowing down so that we weren't just 
plugging trees in the ground. Like I think there's, like I said earlier, I think that's important to do that, but that's not where our project is really focused. And so um, after I consulted with some local folks from around here, even though I thought I had a really good project uh, and I thought I had looked at all of my blind spots, I started to realize that um, there were blind spots that I hadn't seen and I really needed to take a moment and not just rush into this project with a savior mentality. And so I had to slow down with the actual physical aspects of the project and do a lot more research and a lot more relationship building. So since the tree planting we, we did for the Kickstarter, I have since then really moved into the more research and trying to find methods and experimenting with small uh, with small test plots um, that I feel really confident getting behind. And this year, what feels really exciting is we're back more in the physical realm with the project and less in the research and development phase, which I couldn't be happier about. Um, we're creating a living fence around the nursery. So we're actually, we are, we've probably been growing out, gosh, tens of thousands of redwoods and Pacific yew and black raspberry and goat. Um, oh gosh, I'm thinking about the greenhouse in my head and just seeing thousands of plants growing in there right now. So yeah, it feels really good to be back with the plants and not have to be focusing on the Kickstarter rewards and also knowing that we've done a lot of due diligence with um, just thinking things through and making sure that we're going about it as as respectfully as we can. And I'm sure that as the project continues, there will be times that we have to restructure and change course a bit um, with more information that's coming out. But yeah, like I said, the project is really relational. And so things take more time. And what I'm learning is that um, that's okay. And that was something that was that was hard for me to work through because I do have a lot of urgency and I have a lot of grief about what's happened to the planet and the forest. And in some way, I, of course, want to be fast and I just want to fix things. But that mentality of just wanting to fix things um, isn't is something I'm really trying to unlearn and have been doing that over the past couple of years with this project. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I know that nature works in its own time and its own rhythm. And I think it, it doesn't work with our, I want to say, corporate type of mentality or at least some of the Western lifestyle that we've adopted. So for myself as an herbalist, you know, if I got busy, the plants grew and went to seed and died back in their time. And I had to learn how to work with that rhythm in order to be a successful gatherer of plants at their optimal time for health and healing. And I can see that same, you know, framework for yourself uh, working with the forest. And, of course, including the understories is invaluable because they work together. There's a whole community out there. And uh, so thank you for sharing that. Is, is yeah. there anything else about the project you'd like to share or do you have any, I don't know, tips or uh, practical tips that we can do? We're not, I'm in Connecticut here on the East Coast. I don't have 
redwood forests out here, but there are certainly beautiful forests. We're losing, some, unfortunately, we're losing some of our hemlocks because of climate change mm -hmm. and uh, some of the yeah. infestations that are going on. And like you, I have to tell you, it makes me also uh, grieve and feel sad for what we're losing uh, at this time in our, our development. Um, so would you like to add anything else? Hmm. Well, gosh, yeah, I, I feel very grateful to work on this project. I feel like um, I don't think I'll ever be an expert, and I'm not trying to be, and, and that's another thing that I'm trying to get away from the dominant mindset. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting to work closely with the forest in this way and try to hear what what is the next step forward and not get too wrapped up in that, uh, like not get too wrapped up in like the, um, cause it, 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 what am I trying to say? It's easy to get to a place where it's like, Oh, how can we do anything? Because everything in this system that has, that has been set up for us to live within is detrimental to somewhere else in some way. Um, you know, taking water from one place, you're taking water away from that place to then put it into a nursery or whatever. And so, I mean, there's so, so many steps with the project and it's, uh, it's been really humbling for me to look through all of these steps and try to come up with the most respectful way forward. And at this point, <laughs> I feel really confident and positive that we are finding those ways that are gentle and thoughtful. And it just work feels so good to be with the plants again. Um, it was, yeah. It just feels so good to be collecting seeds. So, oh, yeah, that, that's something that I will mention is um, something that I noticed in the years of research and development with the project is that there is a major seed scarcity issue. So, um, you know, if you wanted to even plant, and I'll just use redwoods, if you wanted to plant millions of redwoods, it's like, well, one, the... the um, the germination rate is only about seven to ten percent per, per seed, so you know you have to take that into account. But you have to also consider, like, where are you going to get those millions of seed? Who's collecting them, and does the public have access to them? And what I found was that it's actually quite frightening to see how little seed is available in terms of native seed. Now, redwood is a little easier to find, but it's not that easy to find. And the only reason it's a little easier to find is because redwood is kind of a um you know it's a it's a popular tree and it's also used for logging and so most of the redwood seed that's collected is actually collected by the timber companies to do plantings to be cut down again but if you're trying to look for seep monkey flower you're trying to look for these more um, off the beaten path understory plants that don't have an economic value in our system people aren't really collecting seed or the people who are, it's not in bulk. And it's like I said, really challenging to find. So part of our project is really about collecting seed and creating a seed and fungal library that we can share with other restoration projects and other community forest projects. Because at the end of the day, like I don't want the 1 million Redwoods project to be one of the only projects doing this, you know, I want more and more people to be involved. And I really see our project as being a support system to other communities and to other projects. So I, I love 
being able to collaborate and be in community with this work. Mm. That's very, very interesting. I know that those of us in this field are very concerned about our seeds and what what truly is available to us. Uh, I just opened up a package of mescaline mix uh, from one of the big seed companies, uh, and it had maybe 14 seeds in it, and that's it. And there was nothing else in there in the packet. And I don't think the public in general is aware of, of who makes those determinations. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. you're educating folks about that through your projects too, the, the value of seed and where they came, where they come from. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think it's really important for us to understand the complexity of these issues so that we're not just seeing like a shiny pamphlet of everything that looks good, but not really realizing what's happening behind the scenes. I think it's important for us to know and for us to be transparent with each other because we're not going to come up with actual solutions if we don't actually know the problems. (laughs) So, yeah. That's true. I know there are some seed banks starting for some of our more easier plants, uh, easy garden plants in various communities. Uh, and libraries are actually at the forefront of that, which is a very interesting um, cooperation within the community for people to bring seeds to their libraries and the libraries catalog them and then they can you know, exchange for other seeds. So that's Again, a grassroots movement that's slowly taking off. I don't think it's a major movement yet, but I'm hopeful that that will take off more strongly as we continue, uh, especially with what's happening today. Yeah. You know, with the COVID virus, we are we're home, we're sheltered, and we have some time to get out in the yard. Absolutely. Well, absolutely, Ayana. Um, I'm so grateful that you could be on our show today. Uh, could you leave us with your contact information? Yeah. Um, so my contact is um, my website at forthewild.world. And you can also find us through social media and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, all at For the Wild. And um, you can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes and probably a bunch of other places, Stitcher and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, um, and if you want to reach out to us and email us directly, you can email us at connect at forthewild.world and we respond to everybody. So yeah, for those folks who are listening who want to connect, please do so. We really love building community and we're here for it. Mm, Wonderful. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off today? Well, just thank you so much for having me on the show and for taking the time to talk about plants and trees with me. And, um, yeah, it's always something that I love (laughs) to talk about and, and connect with people over. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Again, your projects are inspiring. Your passion is definitely felt. And uh, I'm so grateful to you, too, for the fact that you're an example for us of one person can make a difference. We just simply have to follow our passion. And that's what I hear in your story is that, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing led to another Mm -hmm. and you're following your passion. And look what's happening. Yeah, yeah, it really was one thing led to another. And I just kept saying yes, and I kept showing up, and I 
continue to stay committed. And I think that's part of it is that there's been a lot of ups and downs and things have not been flawless. There's been frustrations and setbacks and, you know, ego issue, like just feeling crushed, my ego feeling crushed at times. And, um, and I just kept waking up every morning and saying, okay, I'm going to get back on the horse. Like I'm not, I'm not going to give up when times get hard and I'm not going to, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to just move on. I made a vow to the forest to be with them. And, and I think that's really helped me stick it through. And, and I know this is also a lifelong project, all these projects, you know, these are, these are not fast. This is relational. It will take time and I'm in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's sayings about that. There's wisdom in there because the things that are worthwhile are the ones that do last and the ones that take time. And uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. Absolutely. Well, Thank everyone, so yeah, this has been another engaging discussion today, and I'm so grateful to Ayana Young for sharing with us her projects and for her inspiration. This is Judith Dreyer. I'm the author of At the Gardens Gate book and blog. My book is available through my website, which is www.judithdreyer.com, as well as several distribution arms, such as Amazon, Nook, Goodreads, and more. I'd like to remind all of you that a transcript is available for each podcast. Please like and share them. Let's support each other and get the word out. And remember, now is the time for practical action and profound inner change, so we value our world again. Enjoy your day.